Hello, and welcome to Dare to Use the F-Word, the podcast that brings you stories about how millennials are taking on feminist ideas and making them their own. I'm Rebecca Lee Douglas, Barnard Class of 2010. And I'm Annalise Finney, Barnard Class of 2015. And today I'll be your co-host. Dare to Use the F-Word is a production of Barnard College and the Barnard Center for Research on Women. So Annalise, you're very busy this summer. Tell us what you've been up to. Well, I'm originally from California, but I've been spending this summer living in New York, which is kind of an adventure in and of itself. Um, While I've been here, I've been doing two different internships. The first is with the Inside Out Project, which is a nonprofit global participatory art project. Um, And the second internship I've been doing is with Green Thumb, which is a sub-department of the Parks Department of New York City that supports and organizes community gardens throughout all five boroughs. So it's pretty awesome that we were able to grab you to help out with this podcast episode, which is all about image. (laughs) At the very least, we should be elevating the way women are perceived in society. I guess some people object to powerful depictions of awesome ladies. We have stories about millennial women who are working with projects that deal with media representation of young women. Our first interview is with Jamie Kalis, who became famous a few years ago for her blog, The Seventeen Magazine Project. We'll also talk to Alexandra Kale. She's written about the phenomenon of dype, documented instances of public eating, or when journalists interview young female celebrities over a meal and then focus the story on what the celebrity orders to eat. But first, let's start with Jamie. She's probably best known as the creator of The Seventeen Magazine Project, but she's also the woman behind Teenagery a blog that challenges media images of what it means to be a teenager. In 2011, Jamie organized Chicago's Slut Walk, and she was a regular blogger for Rookie, which is Tavi Gevinson's online magazine for teen girls. Jamie's also studying English at the University of Chicago. She's been out of the media spotlight for the past year or so, so we decided to catch up with her to see what she's been up to. I gave her a call over Skype. You became pretty well-known as a young feminist when you were 18 years old and created the Seventeen Magazine Project. Can you explain to our listeners what the project was all about? Yeah, sure. So I was in my the waning days of my senior year of high school and, like, pretty bored, done most of my classes, and just reading a lot of blogs, killing time in the library, and also reading a lot of magazines and, like, mostly stuff my school subscribed to, which, like, wasn't the best selection, I started reading Seventeen on a sort of regular basis, and I just thought it was hilarious because, like, I was 18. The magazine is, like, purportedly for people who are 17, and, like, I didn't know anyone who's liked anything in the magazine, so I just sort of started thinking about it and, like, making fun of it a little bit, and I was really into sociological images, that blog that sort of, like, looks at pop culture through a sociology lens, so I was like, why not do something like that myself, and it was, like, my first blog I think I ever had, but I don't know, I've been reading a lot of them, so I sort of like got the gist of what it was about. So for people who haven't read it, can you give a few examples of what the posts were like? Yeah, so I guess I would do stuff like, I don't know, talk about different stuff. Like sometimes there would just be like a trend, which would be like tribal, and I'd talk about like why I thought that was sort of strange or problematic. Um, or sometimes I do things where I take a survey of the magazine, so like just talk about like, what color hair women in the magazine had or like what race people in the magazine appeared or like identified as especially like actresses and stuff where you could like get them on record about kind of like how they identify race wise and just sort of like make pie charts look at stuff like that just mostly like I tried to in the 30 days that I did it address anything that could be interesting in the magazine so it was sort of like eclectic but definitely with the kind of social justice orientation 
You got a lot of media attention from the project. What was it like to be 18 years old and receiving all of that recognition? It's definitely really fun to, like, go around and do a bunch of interviews, especially, like, with things I've been reading. Like, I got to talk to Jezebel, which I was a big fan of at that time. I talked to Feministing, which was cool, because that was definitely part of my introduction to feminism. Being 18 and getting media attention is also, like, a little crazy-inducing because it's just weird to be young and be, like, kind of living in this time where, like, my parents didn't really know how to handle this because, like, if you were, like, getting media attention in the olden days, it was because you usually, I feel like it was maybe a more gradual experience. Like, instant stardom didn't seem like, not that I'm instantly a star, but, like, I feel like instant stardom wasn't a thing that happened as much. Like, usually you'd be, like, gradually working up to it, but, like, it's very weird to have this blog and all of a sudden, like, you're getting a million calls and emails and, it's like, wow, what do, you, what do you do now? Like, there's no roadmap for that yet. I guess there is more so in the time since I did the project. So then you sort of used the skills that you gained from creating the Seventeen Magazine project to create this new blog, Teenagerie. What motivated you to to make that website? Um, I guess my initial impulse was that, like, I liked writing about pop culture kind of stuff in the frame of Seventeen, and there were a lot of people that liked reading my work. So... Then I was thinking, well, I could probably write about other stuff that's or- oriented towards teenagers. So I, I don't know. It just kind of covered pop culture stuff more broadly in the same kind of framework that I was working in in the Seventeen Magazine project. So I, I don't know. I just talk about stuff like that, but in the lens of like, what does it really mean to be a teenager, and like, what even is a teenager? So stuff like I don't know, like Katy Perry's Teenage Dream came out around that time, and like. There's like an ad campaign, I think, for all states that was running that was like showing teenage female drivers as like really crazy texting, talking on their phone. We actually have a clip from that here. I'm a teenage girl. My BFF Becky texts and says she's kissed Johnny. Well, that's a problem because I like Johnny. Now I'm emotionally compromised and whoopsies. I'm all OMG. Becky's not even hot. And if you've got cut rate insurance, you could be paying for this yourself. Yeah, it's not a flattering depiction of teen girls. You also had some more serious posts. One of your last ones was titled, Today I Had to Leave Class to Cry. At the time, you were in class at the University of Chicago, where you were discussing hypothetical situations related to the First Amendment. So this is from the post. Today, we were discussing censorship of printed materials. And the hypothetical situation involved an imagined how-to guide on rape. Should we ban this? The professor asked. I endorsed permitting the guide to be published. I'm very much of the school of thought that the marketplace of ideas will combat fringe ideas on its own, and that the discourse surrounding controversial material is a lot more conducive to progress than a downright ban could ever be. Though the notion of a how-to guide on rape makes me nauseous, I'd be willing to let it exist in the name of freedom of expression and promoting progress. A number of other people in the class agreed that the book shouldn't be banned, but supported their opinion with different logic. A few boys chimed in with some statistics about the proportion of rape victims who are raped more than once, and suggested that perhaps the book would be a good resource for women who wanted to learn how to prevent being raped. There is no such thing as rape prevention. The only way For people to not get raped is for people not to rape them. We can't end rape by dressing modestly or avoiding dark alleys or letting friends babysit our drinks while we go to the bathroom. The only way to abolish rape is for nobody to rape anybody else. It really isn't a difficult concept. 
So you received a ton of comments on this blog post, and you really started an online conversation. What did you think about the huge reaction that this post got? I'm surprised because I just heard a verdict because I was, like, pissed off. Like, I, I guess I didn't, like, like, I kept talking to my friends about this thing that happened in my class, and, like, it was just, like, like really agitated me. And I sort of got into this argument that I didn't have the language to really execute. Like, I started talking about it, and I just got very frustrated and emotional because I was like, I don't really know how to talk about this in a way where you can, like, bring someone over to the side that, like, is clearly, in my opinion, and, like, in an ethical opinion, the right side. So I, I just was, like, thinking about it and very frustrated. So then I, like, I wrote a thing that I was, like, it's, I mean, at least in my whole life, it's always been easier to write something than to say it. Um, and I was... I mostly just wrote it because I was pissed off and all these people picked it up and, like, we're talking about how, like, it was really interesting and, like, I don't know. I think there's definitely, like, a trend that's happening now towards, like, very close first-person kind of, like, proudly emotional writing by women. And I think that's why a lot of people liked it. And, yeah, I don't know. Like, it wasn't, like, a conscious post where I was, like, I'd like to write something about, like, race culture. It was just, like, I guess coming into college and being... 19 years old or whatever like you encounter it in a very much more like pressing way than I think you do in high school when you're I mean hopefully than when you do in high school when you're like hopefully a little bit sheltered but that's not everyone's experience I know. You recently deleted your Facebook and your Twitter accounts Uh, why did you want to get rid of them? Um, I mean there's like a million reasons I guess just like the first one is that the time suck and like that everyone knows that, but like, I feel like there's work I could be doing and things like in self-care things I could be doing with my life that a few hours a day on Facebook sort of put the block up. And I have a million things to say about it. Like I think it, Twitter sort of makes this weird thing where like you think of yourself as more of a character than a person where like all the time you're like, what can I say to like, like it's my Twitter. Like what can I say? And like, how does that reflect on myself? And it's this thing where you're constantly having to narrate your life in this sort of quirky, funny way. And it's got very tired of that. Jamie, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Yeah, sure. Jamie Kalis is currently writing a bunch of fiction, much of which is based on her own life and her experiences. If you're interested in what she's up to, you can catch up with her on our Tumblr, jamiekalis.tumblr.com. So next we have our conversation with Alexandra Kale. She actually works right here at Barnard for the communications department. In 2012, Alex graduated from NYU with a master's degree in media culture and communication. She focused her master's project on this media phenomenon referred to as DIPE, or documented instances of public eating. To give you an example of what we're talking about, we had some friends of the podcast read examples from popular magazines. Esquire, profile of Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence is hungry. It's 9 a.m., she's been up for an hour, and she hasn't eaten a thing. I'm freakish about breakfast, she says. By which, thank God, she doesn't mean she wants an extra diet cookie. You're not going to order, like, fruit or something, are you? She asks, with real concern. Because I'm going to eat. She orders the Eggs Benedict without looking at the menu. Details. Profile of Mila Kunis. Here at the counter of Musso and Frank's, the vintage grill on Hollywood Boulevard, where she's been ordering the same breakfast, bacon, two eggs over easy, and a stack of flannel cakes since she was nine years old, she's so bracingly approachable that you might momentarily forget that she's, like, famous. 
Vogue profile of Kate Blanchett. Blanchett announces that she's famished and orders salmon and spinach, adding at the last second a side of Parmesan fried courgettes to start. A suggestion that we split the courgettes is met with uncertainty. I think we'd each better get our own, she says. Or things could get ugly. Esquire profile of Christina Hendricks. Christina Hendricks. And two kinds of pork in one soup? Bring it on. I just learned what guanciale is when I was in New Orleans. It's the pig jowl. I went to this butcher there and I came home with lots of sausages. A big andouille and a blood sausage. Esquire. You know your pork. Christina Hendricks, I can see it in Esquire. I know my pork, oh my gosh. So that should give you a pretty good idea of what dipe is. But in case you're still confused, don't worry, I started my interview with Alex by asking her to describe exactly what the concept refers to. DIPE is an acronym that stands for Documented Instance of Public Eating, and it's a term that was coined by a film publicist, which kind of tells you something already. It's a publicity <laughs> yeah. tactic. So. You're a sexy Hollywood starlet, and I'm a <laughs> journalist, and we're going to have an interview. Your publicist is like, I have an idea. Let's schedule her interview over lunch. That way, the interview can only last as long as it takes us to have lunch. We have something built in to talk about. It's what you're eating for lunch, and it's a great way to make you seem down-to-earth and relatable and just like a girl next door and yet still impossibly beautiful. And this has been going on for about a decade. Specifically, why is it a good thing or a bad thing for feminism that these women are diaping? Media is one way that we learn to understand groups of people, right? That's what media studies teaches us. And so when we see a majority of women in the media evaluated by the same bodily standard, it teaches us, encourages us to see all women in the same way. And so how did you first hear about DIPE and what about it so struck you that you decided to write your master's thesis on it? So I first came across this phrase in a New York Times article in the dining section and I was taking a food studies class and we were studying Foucault and power and discourse and the body and sexuality and we had a paper assignment to write a Foucauldian analysis of some food related issue. So I wrote about DIPE and I found it so fascinating that the following semester, when it came time to pick a topic for my culminating project, I wanted to return to it. Wow, and has there been a lot of writing about DIPE? It's not something that I was familiar with until I heard from you. You know, there were a couple New York Times pieces about it, and there hasn't been a lot of meta writing about this type of writing, but if you check out the newsstand today and look at some magazines, Esquire, GQ, Vogue, Details, you can find plenty of examples. So how much does DIPE have to do with just eating versus what the actress is eating? It has a lot to do with what they're eating. What they're eating is really important. If she's eating a low-fat yogurt or a salad, (laughs) it doesn't count. (laughs) But that'd be so quick. At the end of that meal, she could go back and the interview would be over. But she wouldn't have accomplished her goal of seeming relatable and Uh, down-to-earth. There is something about the intersection of carnality of comfort food, of digging into something really greasy that parallels the oral fixation and the oral gratification of eating and other types of eating that you might do, or one might do. (laughs) I see. (laughs) In a dipe, what she's eating is meant to convey a particular message, and she has to be eating something that matches with that message. And if the message is, I am a sexy superhuman creature who can eat everything and still look amazing... It has to be something that would defy that expectation. 
a lot of articles that write about what these women are eating will be accompanied by a photo shoot of them eating something salacious, looking melted chocolate dripping down their hands in a lacy huh. negligee and a white bed. When I've presented this paper at conferences, my presentation is 60 slides that are just pictures. Well, what do you think about the difference between the contrast between descriptions of Dype and the prevalence in other women's magazines of celebrity meal plans? Like celebrities saying, I eat for breakfast a cup of oatmeal and a banana. And it's very focused on calorie counting and exercise as opposed to this food gorge that is Dype. I think they're two sides of the same coin. I think they're both ways to highlight the superhuman nature of these actresses and make the rest of us just feel inadequate. Why do you think that a profile on a male would be different? This month's August Esquire, for example, Matt Damon is on the cover. Hmm. Matt Damon is just a regular guy. That's what the whole piece is about, how he's just a regular guy. In the piece, the journalist writes about how he orders a, not a small beer, but a large beer. And it's about enhancing his masculinity. It's about exerting power, knives, meat, carnality, beer, chest bumping. It's masculinizing rather than sexualizing. I'm interested in the contrast between these images and how real life women feel eating in public. For example, I've had a number of friends tell me that they're kind of nervous on a date when they have to eat because they don't want to spill their food or look like they're gluttonous and eating a ton. How does, does that relate to diap at all? Or what does diap mean for the average woman in terms of her own eating habits? I think that part of what makes Dype so spectacular to read about is that it is so different from our regular life because we do feel as women this pressure to be in control of all of our bodily functions at all times. And so Dype is amazing to read because here is this woman who is voluptuous or thin, but always beautiful and always desired eating a cheeseburger like it doesn't matter. What is she doing? It matters when we eat cheeseburgers, right? Because we gain weight and we feel bad about ourselves and our skin breaks out. And that's what makes Dype so harmful to the average reader because it just is another way to make us feel bad about ourselves. So (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like there's this standard of what women are supposed to be, which is uh, thin and beautiful and clear-skinned and then Dype which is kind of smacking that in the face and taking down that stereotype and saying that these beautiful women actually eat cheeseburgers but in fact it's not a reality it's totally false advertising it huh. is not a real embrace of the female appetite so it holds them into a standard of beauty at the same time breaking down their ability to get there by saying you're only normal if you do these things but you're also only normal if you are physically beautiful it's that double-edged sword. Oh man, that's rough. rough. (laughs) That's rough. And so has it changed your views on feminism at all? What Dype really highlights for me is that all advocacy is in progress. No advocacy is complete. Hmm. We don't have as much overt discrimination these days as we used to, but we have now a subtle, more slippery and a bit sinister kind of discrimination that it's harder to put your finger on. Huh. Okay, and Dype is one of those examples. I think so. Thank you for coming, Alex. This has been great. Thanks. It's been great to chat with you. All right, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to our guests, Jamie Kalis and Alex Kale. You can see what Jamie's up to on our Tumblr at jamiekalis.tumblr.com.
That's J-A-M-I-E-K-E-I-L-E-S dot Tumblr dot com. And you can catch up with Alex on her blog, alexanderkale.com. And if you have any ideas for future shows or any people who fit our theme who you'd like to hear interviews with or stories about, make sure to contact us at bcrw at barnard.edu. You can download our podcast on iTunes. Just search for Dare to Use the F Word. Or you can listen at BCRW's website at bcrw.barnard.edu. Look for our August podcast on food activism, where we'll speak to Tanya Fields. She's working to change the way that communities in the South Bronx think about food through guerrilla gardening, workshops, and a green market on wheels that runs on vegetable oil. So they would use this bus that we would convert to vegetable oil, that we put solar panels on, that we would like trick out, you know, like sort of like a eco version of Pimp My Ride. But for now, we'll leave you with a dare. Use the F word. <laughs>